Yagi, and welcome to the fifth, I think, are we on five? No, four. I think so. Four or five. Wow, we've already lost count. We're on the fourth episode of the Tiagi Group TI Training Training Intelligence Podcast. So welcome to the show. How are you, Tiagi? I'm doing fine. It is snowing. We got a snowstorm in Bloomington, Indiana. Oh, you've been getting hit quite a bit lately, huh? Yes, but it could have been worse. I could be in Washington, D.C. Yeah, I think they got uh, close to three feet. So today we thought we'd do something kind of special. and uh, we'll get... be Valentine's Day. <laughs> this is our Valentine's episode. Uh, it's kind of scary that it's you and I talking then. We thought we'd do something special based on several emails we've gotten asking about your background, who you are, a lot of people have gone on the website and read uh, your short essays uh, called uh, When I Was Raja's Age. And so we thought we would uh, spend some time uh, talking about your background, who you are, how you grew up, how you became a trainer, what your experiential approaches, uh, where they came from, and so forth. Does that sound all right? That sounds good, but I come from a culture which frowns upon a self-disclosure statement. But I will pretend to be a U.S. American and pour out all my innermost thoughts. Well, just think of this as like Oprah, Dr. Phil. Okay, good. So, or we can just end the show now. <laughs> so, so why don't we, uh, given that, let's start from a professional standpoint. Uh, when and how did you decide to become a trainer? Uh, I guess I was about uh, seven years old, uh, Matt. My, I came from a family of uh, teachers and uh, trainers. My mother was uh, one of the few mathematics uh, teachers in uh, those days. And my father was a headmaster of a high school and uh, a school I went to. So... Uh, on my seventh birthday, my father took me aside and he said, I want to give you a very important piece of advice. Whatever you do, never ever become a teacher or a trainer. Promise me. And I said, yes, I will never ever become a teacher or a trainer. And Within 30 seconds, I decided that is the profession I wanted to pursue in my life. Now, when you were seven years old, did you have any idea what a trainer was? Uh, no, but uh, we had, in the language I spoke in Tamil, we have just a single word for educator, teacher, trainer, facilitator, instructor, and all of those uh, uh, additional words. So the, uh, he used a word which stood for both the trainer and the teacher, Matt. Why did he tell you that, though? Uh, because uh, he knew 
that being a trainer or a teacher is a thankless job. Your students hate you and you try to help them and they don't believe you. They think you're making their life miserable. And also, you never become a rich person like you would if you got a degree in engineering or medicine or if you got a government job. What, as a seven-year-old, excited you about that? Uh, I just wanted to do something which defied authority, which... uh, did the opposite of what grown-ups wanted me to do, which kind of brought me to a sudden realization that if you want to change behavior, don't get too, too intense about it and don't ask people to promise what they would be like. At what point did you uh, begin to start thinking about experiential approaches or interactive strategies? And uh, why did that having happen? decided that I'm going to become a teacher. I got a degree in physics, and then I arranged it in such a way that I'll be fit only to be a teacher. So I taught high school, and I was teaching the equivalent of an inner city classroom, about 45 to 50 students, actually 50 students in my classroom. And I was talking about the four strokes of internal combustion engine. Do you know anything about that? No, nothing actually. I failed failed that class. I can make up anything I want to. This is before we got modern cars. And so I was uh, telling them about the intake stroke and the compression stroke and the power stroke and the, uh, I forgot, the fourth stroke, which is the stroke where the piston pushes out all the exhausted gases and so on. So I was uh, doing a brilliant lecture and looked up at the class and half of the class was sleeping. (laughs) So in desperation, I said, everybody wake up. We are going to have a contest. Organize yourselves into five teams of 10 people each. And you got 15 minutes. Go out into the street and from any of the parked cars, bring back a carburetor. And one of the kids said, hey, teach, what's a carburetor? I said, look at 1117 of your science textbook. And they all flipped the book, looked at the diagram, looked at the picture, turned the book upside down, and uh, talked to their teammates and things of that nature. I said, time is uh, running. You got 15 minutes to bring back a carburetor. If you don't, uh, if you cannot get one, come back in 15 minutes. So in 15 minutes, uh, three of the five teams did bring back a carburetor. We took them apart and looked at the various components, and then I gave them back uh, to the students and said, hey, here is part two of the contest. Now put it back in such a way the card will start again, 
and without getting caught by the police. So they finished that, and that is when I suddenly realized how excited, how engaged the students were, and how much they were learning from this experiential, hands-on kind of activity. So that was my first epiphany that uh, there is nothing that beats a hands-on experiential activity, followed by appropriate debriefing. Later on, I found that most adults behave just like slightly emotionally disturbed teenagers when they became managers and so on. So I thought the same techniques will work okay. So that was my first foray into experiential learning math. And the side benefit was you have a lot of recurring income from all of these uh, uh, new uh, car thieves. And actually, that is an interesting follow-up. So I go back, and this is about 45 years ago, and I go back and track people, track my students down and see what they are doing. And about three years ago, uh, I heard lots of rumors about Dhanasegaran, who was the leader of the winning team. I tracked him down. And guess what he's doing now? He is the grand theft auto larceny king of Chennai, India. You tell him what part you want, what make, what year, and it is delivered to your house within 24 hours. That must be the epitome of uh, classroom success. Uh, talk of a level four evaluation. <laughs> What more can a person ask? I had a long conversation about the ethics and so on. He said, oh, chill, teach. I'm not doing anything bad. I'm just robbing from fat cat rich people and spreading the wealth around. <laughs> he was a true socialist. <laughs> so let's stay in your childhood for a few seconds. There's a, a, You took me to Chennai a while ago, and there was a statue of your, your grandfather, or great-grandfather? Uh, my grandfather. Right in the middle of the city? Uh, no, right in, uh, uh, yeah, right in the middle of a city inside a school where I taught. He was a teacher, no, yeah, uh, for a short period he was a teacher, but he was a civil servant. He was the registrar of cooperative societies. So the British government at that time uh, discovered the joys of cooperative societies, just like uh, co-ops in the United States. And then just to put some red tape around it, every cooperative society had to register itself. And my grandfather's job was to ensure that cooperative societies followed the rules and regulations. In addition to that, he was a politician. He started a party at that time called the Justice Party, and, and he was a militant atheist, and for a short period he was jailed for making fun of 
Hindu gods and goddesses. Wow. So uh, he was pretty important then? Uh, he was a social organizer, community organizer, and he was uh, against uh, a caste system, against superstition and things of that nature. So at least we know where you get it from. No, I'm just uh, a mild, make, modest person who does not make any waves. Uh, just like Clark Kent. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so how did you end up um, going into graduate school and getting uh, a, a Ph.D. in cognitive psychology then, if you were a uh, physics teacher? I was uh, teaching high school, and in my part time, I did some instructional design, and I sent uh, my programmed instruction to a research unit attached to the Ministry of Education. And somebody from the ministry wrote me a note saying, there is an American expert coming to talk about programmed instruction. Please attend his session. And they paid me something like 25 cents, my daily uh, rate. And so I went and attended the workshop. It was more of a presentation. At the end, I got into an argument with the instructor, and I said, the research you cited is actually not the original research. It's a replication, and it was originally done by Waldo Sweet. And if you look at Blazer, Schaefer, and Hami, on page 64, second paragraph, you will see references to the original research. I used to be, I used to have a photographic memory, and I was a smart aleck, so the instructor thought I was an idiot. And a week later, I got a cable from him saying, you are right, I'm wrong, would you like to be my graduate assistant? He was the head of the psychology department at Indiana University. So I sold my wife's jewelry and jumped into a plane and made it all the way to Bloomington, Indiana. That's where I moved away from physics into psychology and instructional technology and all of those nice things. That had to be a huge decision for you to leave physics. Uh, no, that uh, that was a no-brainer. So, um, which goes to prove that if you want to find the ideal career, sit down and take a lot of tests and figure out what your aptitudes indicate, and ignore everything <laughs> because things happen when they happen. Not that I'm getting fatalistic. But be flexible. You and, and Lucy and Raja landed in New York, and uh, there's an interesting cab story. Ah, yes. Okay. So before we fly to New York, I was told by the Swiss Air ticket agent who said, hey, you guys are going to land in JFK. Your connecting flight is from LaGuardia. Whatever you do, don't take a taxi from JFK to LaGuardia. 
and uh, this was repeated by the cabin crew also don't take a taxi uh, was the mantra they used so we get down pull our luggage into the curbside and the taxi stops in front of us and the guy loads his trunk with our luggage i said no 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 we are going to take a bus he said look at the baby she is too tired have a seat we will take you to laguardia so i sit down and the taxi driver drives here and there i get frightened and then he says hey you look like mahatma gandhi i say yes and he says wow your wife's sari looks good my girlfriend would like to see this sari can we stop on our way and i feel completely confused so we stop on our way and somebody comes down looks at lucy sari and says wow and then we go to laguardia he pulls out our luggage and i say how much he says no charge welcome to the united states so that was my first introduction to the nice people in the united states had flipped your expectations on their head yep they definitely did which made me realize never trust any subject matter expert <laughs> so you get to bloomington there was uh, some cultural assimilation issues for you yeah yep uh one of the traumatizing experience was the day after we got there we lived in a trailer court student housing and our neighbors in the next trailer invited us to a welcome party so we go there and inside the trailer it was a hot summer day inside the trailer there was a bunch of semi clad men and women writing in an orgy on top of a small carpet and my wife kind of fainted and i said she's pregnant i got to take her back to our trailer and later on it was explained to me they were playing the twister <laughs> where you got to put your right leg on a blue triangle and your right uh, hand on a green circle and things of that nature it was a cute game but coming from a culture where men and women do not interact with each other that was a great shock so what a land was that are different strokes for different folks have you ever played twister since uh no i'm still shy inhibited and all of those things but i know the theory and i have used it to make it an instructional game out of it but without anybody having to touch more than one space at a time you're in bloomington you're at the university and you you you're studying psychology now uh actually instructional technology with a minor in psychology and it was uh, in those days called learning theories i took courses from frank frank russell and some very brilliant cognitive psychologists who did not know there is a field called cognitive psychology how mm-hmm. did you uh how, how did 
your coursework and your research lead you to game development? Uh, another uh, interesting, unexpected uh, serendipity. And uh, there was somebody working in the area of special education. My research was in the area of uh, small group learning concept acquisition in small groups. And somebody from the special ed said, do you know how to design games? And they said, sure, I know how to design games because uh, I, I have been dabbling on game design. And so we get a big federal government contract on helping teachers assimilate handicapped or challenged children in their classroom. It was called the mainstreaming movement, and it was on the assumption rather than categorizing kids as retarded and sending them to a special class, keeping them in the regular classroom will be useful for everybody. However, it was a major challenge for regular teachers, so we thought we will do a lot of uh, role plays and games and simulations to train teachers how to handle, how to include, how to integrate handicapped children in their classroom or children who are slightly different. So that's when I started doing games and simulations for teacher training, Matt. And, of course, it's exploded for you as, as kind of the main thing that you use as, uh, in your, your educational work. Yes, uh, I was convinced working with the handicapped children and working with teachers of handicapped children, working with very young people and very old people, that there is something universal about learning through experience, learning through activities. So it is what the ancient Hindu philosopher John Dewey said, experience and education, they are related to each other. So that's the approach I took, Matt. So as you run training games for people over the last, what, 30 now, 40 years? (laughs) Uh, I'm older than you think. (laughs) Uh, when uh, give me a time when uh, playing a game has failed. Um, it never failed, but there was a training session out there in Texas, in Brownsville, Texas. That is the southernmost point of the United States, and I went to run a workshop on use of uh, active methods in teaching handicapped children. The participants were told that this is a session on bilingual education, so they came in there. And when I announced my topic, they said, no, this is on bilingual education, and they grew very, very hostile. So I said, look, I was misled, you were misled. So let's make the best out of this situation. And there are people here who have been teaching bilingual children. I'm bilingual also. Maybe 
we can share the best practices we have. So we came up with a series of activities which involved exchanging best practices, Matt, and they learned a lot from what they already knew and by sharing what they thought. So that was the day I said the best way to defuse hostility is to shut up and let the inmates run the asylum. So that's one hostile group. Do you run into hostile groups a lot? No. I, mm, With the all modesty, I haven't met any group which was not totally engaged within 30 minutes, Matt. And the secret is to shut up and let them do what they find useful, relevant, and engaging. So I've been fortunate enough to travel with you and and I know, won't call it fortunate, <laughs> but that's okay. From your perspective or mine? Uh, I don't know, from <laughs> a neutral perspective. So, all right, then I've been uh, able to travel with you and, and know the clients would warn you uh, almost explicitly to the name of the people that would would be hostile toward you or yeah. trying to undermine things. And it's never happened. Um, so what, what experiences do you think the HR managers or the trainers that were warning us had had that you were able to easily yeah. dissuade? Um, primarily, I think, most well-intentioned people who said, don't play any games which made me immediately decide to play nothing but games, they are projecting their need for control of the participants to me. And I don't have too much of a need to maintain control. I like letting go of the control mat. And I think once you trust your participants, once they realize you are doing something which is good for them. And once you trust the process, the activity, the training activity, then you are in a cruise control. You just let it go and go with the flow. And the folks who say don't do that have a very old-fashioned model of training which is transmitting information, which is making sure the important content, quote-unquote, is all explained in great detail and in a redundantly repetitive manner uh, to the people. And I don't believe training equals telling, and I do believe that nothing like hands-on application and transfer and problem-solving activities. One of the things uh, you used to do as a child, uh, you were a street corner magician. Yes, and that is where I learned most of my skills of attracting and maintaining people's attention. I used to saw a woman in half in my street corner days, and she now lives in New Delhi and Calcutta. How much, how much of the stage experience comes into play uh, along with facilitating the games? Yes, uh, and I think um, 
training involves uh, a, a training to me is a performance art. It's like being a ventriloquist or a magician or a comedian and so on. You've got to attract and captivate and maintain your participants' attention, Matt. So that is one part of it. Training also involves the ability to think on your feet and maximally extracting learning outcomes from every random incident that happened. So if you get heckled by somebody, you say, wow, thank God, that's going to add excitement to what I'm doing and go with the flow. So um, this is the attitude taken by improvisers, by magicians. Everything that happens is a gift and your skill is in being able to maximize the positive outcomes from every mess that happens in your session. And, and speaking of messes, uh, you went to Africa for what, a year or two years? Yeah, uh, actually, three years. Three uh, years in the Liberia. Uh, yep. You went to Liberia in the mid 70s. Mm hmm. Um, and uh, tell us what you were doing there, but also share with us some of the, the scary moments. Uh, yep, I was changing primary education in Africa, sponsored by USAID. We were taking programmed teaching and programmed learning and truly revolutionizing what happened in elementary education. And approximately one year into a project, that was a military coup, and my counterpart in the Ministry of Education was decapitated, and a new group of people led by Sergeant Major Samuel K. Doe took over the government and replaced the corrupt, illegal, sleazy, dishonest cabinet with a new corrupt, dishonest, illegal, sleazy cabinet. And no longer were one group of people exploiting another group. It was a period when every group was exploiting every other group. We hung in there for a year or more. Uh, uh, but uh, there were more coups and counter-coups and more killing and things of that nature. So we had to leave the country proving once for all that uh, there are other factors in the total system that uh, you were trying to bring about a change in education with total ignorance of what is happening in other areas is doomed to fail. And it was at that time that you wrote uh, a, a game that you, uh, to this day, is quite popular among people. Uh, yep, we designed a game called Banga, named after the village where our compound was located. It was a card game, and it was created because we were under house arrest, and uh, we had a lot of Liberian friends, and we played card games and came up with a game which illustrates 
some intercultural communication principles. What is your overall grand uh, philosophy when you're running a program? What training goal? What's your universal training goal? Uh, my universal training goal is very simple. In terms of process, take serious things lightly and light things seriously. My goal is very, very simple. Independent of whatever skill or knowledge I'm teaching, Matt, my goal is to make sure my students surpass me. So let me give, an, give you an anecdote. Uh, one of my participants in one of the classes, one of the courses, came to me and wanted a job. I said, okay, you can have a job, but you keep any money you make. Every person is self-employed in my organization. He said, no, I want to give you all of the money so we can share equally. I thought, here is a kid who is trying to make sure I'm paying him. So the first month he was there, I made $30,000, and he made $150,000, So, which goes to show that I have created a monster. And here is a, here is a participant in a workshop who very easily outperformed me, and that is because in addition to skills and knowledge, there are so many other factors, and my job is to show them what goals, what desirable goals are there, and let them figure out how to achieve that goal. Oh, it sounds like you should get rid of him. <laughs> yes. He actually grew up to be a successful person and became the president of my corporation. Ha-ha. <laughs> well, thanks. And you still can't get rid of him. Yes. Do you have any uh, uh, any last funny stories that you you want to end on? I'm a serious kind of guy. Uh, but, but take it take it lightly. I I think life is unpredictable, and thank God for that. So don't suffer from the delusion that using systematic approaches you can keep everything under control. The joy of being alive is for you to realize it's all a game and you got to play the game to the best of your ability with the cards that are dealt to you. Thank you, Tiagi. Uh, what do you think we should do for, for our next episode? Uh, how about let us do something serious like rapid instructional design? Cool. Excellent. And then uh, I was thinking we could do magic uh, on a, the subsequent episode. Yes, that sounds like a good idea, Matt. All right, everyone, you've heard it. Ep the next two episodes will be rapid instructional design and magic. So tune in someday, sometime soon. Thanks, Tiagi. We'll talk Keep to you soon. Keep warm. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>